Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome back to the Underdog Podcast, Conference USA edition. Excited to be back with you, Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry with you as always. Uh, have a special guest that I want to introduce in just a second. Uh, but National Signing Day just wrapped up. lot to get to, lots of players to talk about. A uh, couple other little developments around the league that we'll probably get to, but uh, I know you're excited to jump into all of that, uh, as most college football fans would be. Uh, our guest today, Brandon Huffman, he is the national recruiting editor for 247 Sports. You've probably seen him around the internet. Uh, Twitter is at Brandon Huffman if you want to go follow him. But uh, Brandon, nice to have another uh, Pacific Northwest guy on the show today. Hey, I'm sure you're looking out and seeing nothing but gray like I am. So at least, uh, you know, we can empathize with each other. Exactly. And we've got uh, the summer to look forward to. Spring football is just around the corner. Uh, baseball spring training just started. So I know that's uh, – I'm, I'm trying to like – what do you call it? Mentally project that I'm down in, in Arizona or uh, down <laughs> by where Eric Henry is in, in Tampa there. That's the way to look at it. Just pretend like my, my in-laws just got back a couple of days ago from spending like the last month in Arizona. And all they talked about was how great the weather is. Thankfully, with this job, I get to hit the road quite a bit and get down to some sunshine. Although I was in L.A. last weekend for an Under Armour camp, and it poured rain the entire time while it was sunny in Seattle. So maybe I'm the one bringing the bad weather with me. So maybe I won't go to Arizona so they're not getting rain training. Funny, funnily enough, the same thing happened to me. I went to Atlanta last week for an event at the College Football Hall of Fame, and I thought to myself, all right, we're going to get some good southern sunshine, some weather, and it poured the entire time. I was so disappointed. Why does that always happen to the Northwest people? Uh, I think they, they just feel like we function better in gray and in rain, so they bring the rain in, in gray to us and let us go about our normal day since we're so used to it. It has to be the only explanation. Yeah, that that definitely makes a lot of sense to me. I know Mr. Eric Henry is biting his tongue as he wants to brag about the weather a little bit. Let, let's let you talk. How you doing today, buddy? Listen, man, you know, I try not to be that guy. I try to be humble on this podcast, but I've got you guys to now have a second uh, residence of, of the Pacific Northwest. And I'm just here enjoying another 85 degree day. And, you know, the uh, what's this? Uh, February 13th. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I'd love to sit here and say that I, I'm, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, Joe, you were once a Florida resident, so you know how it is, man. It's always a room for you to come back. You know, no state taxes, plenty of plenty of incentive. All right, all right, all right, all right. We need to – I regret letting you talk immediately. So uh, let's let's jump into what the folks came here for with the uh, CUSA recruiting news. Uh, Brandon, let's just jump right into it. You know, North Texas, according to you guys at 247 Sports, number one recruiting class in the conference so far. Uh, what have you kind of seen out of that group? Who's really impressing you, and, and why have you guys, uh, you know, found it found them worthy of being number one in the in the league so far? Yeah, I thought they did a really good job of, you know, not just focusing on the state of Texas, but getting out. You know, they went out to Nevada to get a kid. They went out to Utah and, and California to get some JUCOs. They did a nice job of blending junior college players with some high, with, with the majority high school players, but got some impact JUCOs, the, the kind of guys that will be able to come in and make an immediate contribution. You know, obviously the, the bulk of their class was from Texas, but they, they really didn't just focus on the state of Texas, Texas, and they really expanded, went out and, and got a player from one of the best programs out in Vegas. Uh, the, the two JUCOs that they got, one from Snow College in Utah. Uh, if you ever watch Utah Utes football, a lot of those guys have been at Snow at some point. 
I'm in Long Beach City College, teaching on Turpin uh, as well. So you, they got guys in the trenches that will give them an opportunity to to come in and play right away in the JUCO ranks and then have some other guys that they'll kind of be allowed to develop. So I, I just like the, the blend in this class and what they did, uh, you know, really in the trenches. They ended up signing a 10 offensive or defensive linemen. And if you can control, you know, the, the line of scrimmage and if you can get – really good line play and not have to force guys that aren't ready to play into action early, but get some Juco guys that'll be expected to come into play and give some guys some chance, some time to develop. I think that allows for a lot more stability in a program and an offense. You mentioned the impact that these Juco guys can have switching the focus from one team to kind of league wide. Uh, What Juco guys are uh, are you really looking forward to seeing perform as they you know work their way into their new home in Conference USA? Yeah, I mean, I really like Devontae McCray. You know, he's one of their highest rated players in this class. And you know, here's a guy that had a number of Power Five offers. He had Pac-12 offers. He had SEC offers. Um, you know, he had American offers. He had uh, a good chunk of, of offers to, to go play, and he found that. North Texas was a better fit for him, man. I think, you know, you can get a guy who's 6'5", 250 pounds. He probably comes in and, you know, he's, you know, at 260 by the time he's around in the spring, maybe at 265 at, at some point. You know, it gives you an opportunity to get him on the field early. And, and that way, you're not rushing guys that aren't ready to play. You're not bringing in guys that, you know, they're still 30, 40 pounds away. So he's an impact guy and he's an impact guy at a key position as a pass rusher. I also like, you know, what they, what, what FAU did, you know, going out and getting a commitment from Lou Dorsey, who, you know, is a big tight end, uh, another kid who had offers from kind of all over the place. You know, it was a, a you know, former Illinois, a bounce back from Illinois out of Iowa Western. You know, so they address, I think the conference did a good job of addressing needs and guys that are at positions where the physicality really makes a difference. FAU kind of hit it hard, too, because they also got an offensive lineman uh, in Sebastian Dulcine as well. So, you know, when you can get linemen that are JUCOs, I, I think that's where the majority of college coaches that hit the JUCO ranks hard would prefer to get their guys because there's much more maturation there. Those guys are mostly 20, 21 years old rather than 17 or 18. They have at least had a couple of years, you know, of living on their own, at least have been in somewhat of a college setting. Granted, it might have been Bikini College or they could have been bounce backs, but just from a physical standpoint, they're much further along than the majority of the school guys and more, uh, more physically ready to play than high school signees in the offensive and defensive line. As a former offensive lineman myself, can't agree with you more on the on the importance of a good offensive line. And uh, for this next one, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't ask you about my Western Kentucky Hilltoppers. Uh, Quantavius Leslie, offensive guard out of Rome, Georgia. He's their top-rated signing, according to you guys at 247 Sports. I don't know if you've had a, too much of a chance to watch any film of this kid or uh, examine what he brings to the table, but what can you tell me about Mr. Quantavius Leslie? Well, first of all, you're getting a player from a great program, a, a program that's had you know a, a lot of success. You know, wasn't long ago that they were the state champions, you know, back to back state champions in Georgia. So here's a guy that's played at a high caliber of football. He, he's played at you know at a high level. So you, you get a guy like Leslie. He comes in and he's got good size. And one of the things that, that I like to see with offensive linemen is that they're 
on the on one hand a little bit on the undersized part. If he's a guard who's 285 pounds, that usually tells you that he's still got a frame that he could put some more weight on and more good weight on. So the Western Kentucky coaches can really get him to the weight that they want him to be. What you, what you don't necessarily like to see a lot, unless there's some kind of genetic freak, is a 300-plus offensive line there, offensive lineman uh, as a guard coming in out of high school because that usually means they've got a shed weight. And, it, and you know, you'll learn when you get older, it's a lot easier to gain weight than it is to shed weight. And so at 6'4", 285, there's some athleticism there. You know, he's a top uh, 75 player in the state of Georgia. And, you know, we're quickly seeing, and I think it's been like this for probably the last five to seven years, if not a little longer, the big three is no longer, it, it's the big four. And Georgia's right there. And, and maybe their top end talent is, if not equal, better than California, Texas, and Florida over the last five to seven years. So you get a top 75 player from the state of Georgia. You know, that's a guy that I think has the opportunity to really be a pleasant surprise. And, you know, they really hit Georgia hard. Their, their top three signings are all from the state of Georgia. You know, they, they were able to get a defensive line on top of it. You got an athlete in Quez Evans. And so they really did a, a nice job of getting local high school players, but then they too hit the Juco ranks. And then they kind of threw a Hail Mary. There, there's a kid from out my way that they ended up signing on signing day. They, they flipped his commitment on signing day, Grady Robeson, who was committed to Montana State, one of the most exciting players that, that I've seen, you know, in the state of Washington at the quarterback position in some time. And that goes back to when USC had Byron Ellis and uh, – uh, Tyson Helton. They had come up to the Northwest to see just down the road for him to see a quarterback for the last year. We turned back up here looking for a quarterback and they saw Robeson and were able to get a pretty athletic, dynamic player. And so, you know, when you have Mike Sanford there, you had Junior Adams, TJ Woods, those guys that had West Coast ties, there might have been a little bit more looking at the West Coast, but they look like they only have one true West Coaster uh, here, at least from the high school ranks. That's what Spencer Owens and Juco, but I think that I, I like the depth when Ray Rosen is one of your lower rated players in this class and he's a dynamo three-star dual threat. That's a pretty darn good class for, for Tyson Helton in Western Kentucky. Yeah, and uh, on the topic of Grady Robinson, I feel like I could pick your brain all day about the quarterback recruiting specifically in Western Kentucky and, you know, just the options that they have to kind of go from. Uh, but I won't do that at the you know behest of about 90 percent of our listeners who don't want to hear me ramble about the tops all day. Uh, instead, I'll ask you this. You mentioned the development of high school football in Georgia and how they're really up there in terms of, you know, being neck and neck with the Floridas, the, the Californias, the Texases. Uh, as someone who watches as much high school football as you do, uh, to what do you attribute that? You know, I, I think it's, it probably coincides with the expansion of major corporations in Atlanta and Obviously, in the suburban areas around Atlanta, you're, you're building more schools, you're, you're building, you know, more opportunities. And, and so with, as jobs expand and as, you know, new companies end up in a major market like that, obviously with the major airport hub there, it, it's obviously a major you know, thoroughfare to the, the left, I'm sorry, to, the, the, to Europe and to the entire part of the East Coast. But that just means that more families are moving there, which means that, there's more kids playing football. There's more kids getting involved in sports. Obviously, you've got, you know, a great in-state college football program in Georgia with, 
you know, a high level of success, especially in recent years, uh, obviously an NFL team that was in the Super Bowl not long ago. You've got the College Football Hall of Fame. So you have football being a vibrant part in the South, but then you've got a major city like Atlanta. Well, it's going to be expensive to live in Atlanta. So everybody spreads out, but that allows the suburban areas to really grow their football. And I'll say, you know, if they're spending, you know, the last 15, 16 years at either the Under Armour game or the All-American Bowl in San Antonio, when you meet coaches from Georgia, you know that Georgia high school football is very similar to Texas high school football, where that head coach, he's the alpha dog on campus. He's more powerful than the athletic director, than the principal, than the school board director. You know, it's his program. And they get to build that program, and then people move into certain areas so their kids can be a part of that program. So I just think as the population grows, especially in the suburban areas, you're seeing Georgia now start to have – much more depth in the talent that's coming out of the state where it was, you know, in years past, they always had a good number of players, but it was more the top end guys. Now they have elite top end guys and much, much, much more depth in the state. Very insightful answer. Definitely appreciate the uh, look behind the curtain, if you will, into what's making Georgia high school football powerhouse in recent years. So I got to ask before I turn it over to Eric, um, when you look at this recruiting class within Conference USA, of all the teams in this league, who do you feel like did the best of recruiting their home state for 2020? Yeah, I would say, you know, probably FAU and FIU, that they both are, are schools that have been known to kind of recruit their, their states. They've got ties and they've got coaches that, you know, are at other programs that, or that have been to other programs that have ties around. But I think that the, the caliber of players they got from their own state maybe kind of usurps just how much depth. I mean, FIU especially hit their state hard. I mean, I think the majority of this class, uh, if not you know, just about everybody, was a Florida native. There might have been a couple of guys that are from out of state, but they really seem to hit their own state harder. Obviously, FAU, much of that class was put together early on by Lane Kiffin, uh, and then he turned over to Willie Taggart, and you know, Willie Taggart's got coaches that have ties kind of all throughout the country. So I think that you'll see them really focus back on the state of Florida, but I like the caliber of the players they got from the state. Um, and then obviously I, I think North Texas did a good job with kind of their top end guys being native Texans, uh, but also having the ability to kind of spread out and get more players, get more talent from, from other states. So I would say you look at the schools that are kind of the top, those are usually the ones that have had the best success in their own state and of course you get southern Miss, louisiana tech you know both are in states where you know you only have one or two power five programs so that gives you a little better access to that next tier of players and i think both those states you got to be happy with how they did internally as well that actually ended up yeah. being a pretty perfect transition i'll i'll, uh, I'll let you turn it over <laughs> to Eric henry as i'm sure you could uh you two could talk about florida high school football all day if i let you yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, it ended up being you know, a really great transition. But before we get there, I'm going to take kind of a, a macro level question for Brandon. You know, in my role as Underdog Dynasty's beat writer for FIU, it's a question that I get from recruits may DM me on Twitter, just, you know, asking certain curiosities or parents or things of that nature. And, and it's something that, you know, I've been curious of myself. And, you know, since we have you on the line, I feel like you're the perfect guy to ask this question. Could you kind of, you know, 
take us behind the curtain, kind of just, you know, bring fans inside. Uh, something that's, you know, kind of a hotly contested topic is the, the criteria in terms of how, you know, the star rankings are assigned and, you know, things of that nature. Could you just kind of take us behind the curtain and give us, you know, maybe, you know, somewhat of a look at how uh, those ratings are assigned by you guys at 247 Sports? Yeah, and so it's kind of funny because this actually was a topic that came up a couple of days ago on Twitter when a Dallas area, I think it was a Dallas Cowboys beat writer, was making a, a point about the ratings of some local uh, or some Dallas Cowboys assistant coaches and what their ratings were in high school. And it had one of our competing websites had Kellen Moore as a three-star. And, and I had Kellen Moore as a four-star on the old Scott.com back when I was with that network. And, and that was one of those things that I took with a lot of pride. And I went back to, to go and see if I could find you know, th- those rankings from that year anywhere online. But what I did was I found a link to an article that the Boise State beat writer had written in 2007 where he kind of snarkily said, you know, if you go to a certain school, you get more stars. If you go to a certain school, you lose your stars. And, you know, this is before Boise State was the Boise State we know it is now. Yeah, they were just coming off that first Fiesta Bowl win. But I saw, you know, Kevin Moore rated him as a four-star after his junior year before Chris Peterson ever coached the game for the Broncos. So my, my point being that I, I think there's a lot of people that think nefarious, there's this nefarious stuff going on that, you know, we're, we're trying to hurt the little guys and we only help the big guys. You know how many big sky schools, how many Colonel Athletic Association schools, even Ivy League schools signed three stars in this class. You know, there, there's a lot of smaller schools that just did a good job of recruiting. And we try to avoid as many of the regional biases, as many as the where's the kid going biases as we can. I mean, everybody thinks if you go to Bama, you get the Bama bump. I mean, there have been players that Bama has taken in the last couple of years that we all looked at and going, what is Nick Saban seeing in this kid? And then their career plays out pretty unremarkably. And we're like, yes, we, we, thought, we thought that was the case. And it was a lower rated player. And, you know, so I think people think that there's this, you know, funny business that goes on where we try to screw over the little guys, but that's not the case. The reality is the top players that we evaluate and that we rate, those are the ones that the big schools are after. Those are the ones that the big schools want. And the reality is that it may work that way that, you know, the Clemson, Ohio State, the LSUs, the Alabama, and Georgias continue to get good classes. But there's also schools that aren't blue bloods that are signing good classes. They do a good job of developing those players. There's also programs that they are blue bloods and their coaching development is terrible and it's evident in their record. And a new coach comes in and can immediately change that, that fortune because the players are still good. They just don't get talented. So I set that all up to say, you know, it's a long process. We, we will do our first evaluation of kids at the end of their freshman year and in terms of the spring after their freshman year. So as, about a month before they head into their senior year, we'll do a top 100 list. Then the first real list comes out after their sophomore year and they've had uh, in a lot of cases, two years of varsity football, in some cases, maybe one year of varsity football. But they at least have some context that we've been able to evaluate, whether it's an in-person evaluation, huddle, uh, camp, seven-on-seven, seven, you know, show, national showcases. You get a chance to see them in person. We come out with our first two, top two four seven in the spring of their sophomore year, and then it just continues to expand. And we're constantly seeing new players every day. We're seeing guys that were rated really highly that – that drop. I mean, in our very first real class of 2020 rankings, our number one player was Brian Receive. He finished as the number three player. Our number two player was Julian Fleming. He finished as our number four player. Our number three player was Savelle Smalls, and he finished as our number 51 player. So, 
guys will drop just because they start out as a sophomore doesn't, you know, high doesn't mean they stay that way. And, you know, guys will drop because they just don't improve. Meanwhile, there's guys, there's always cases like an Antonio Brown, like a JJ Watt, you know, guys that were two stars. You know, people always forget that JJ Watt was a walk on at Wisconsin and he went to Central Michigan. Where are all those Big Ten schools that are using him as an example of the star system flies? Talk to none of them offered anybody. Everybody talks about how great Aaron Rodgers was. Then Jeff Tetford went to go watch the tight end at Butte College, and then he found Aaron Rodgers, who turned into a legend. So even college coaches get it wrong. If they hit on half their class, they're happy. So the point is, is we try to find the best football players, regardless of where they're from and where they're going to school, and do the best that we can to project and evaluate. You know, what, what the funny thing is, everybody talks about how great the NFL draft is. You know, we, we'd love to see the top 20 NFL draft busts make a lot of number one overall picks that are in that. But NFL GMs get a little bit of a free pass, too. So, yeah, the star system takes a lot of beatings. But I, I would say that now with Huddle, with so many national camps, seven-on-seven tournaments, high school games being televised, you know, nightly, there's so many opportunities to get a thorough in-depth evaluation. And that allows us to rank two stars, three stars, four stars, five stars. There's 32 five stars to mimic the 32 first round draft picks. There's usually around 300 four stars. And then your biggest number is going to be in the three star range. And there's going to be a significant amount of two stars. So when people say, oh, there's more three stars and two stars in the NFL than four and five. Well, yeah, because in any given year, there's more two stars and three stars at Simon Colleges than four stars and five stars. You know, when you have two or three two stars in draft in the first round, and nine five-stars get drafted in the first round, that's a hell of a successful class. That's not a bad draft. That's actually proving the point that you've got a good chunk of a very small number right. So it's a long process. It's, it's done at the grassroots, local level, ground floor. We have people in every region that are watching high school football, watching camps, watching seven-on-seven, seven, really year-round and using every concept of the camp to come up with the most accurate. Because we don't want to be wrong. We want to be right, too. You know, we want in four or five years when people look back and say, wow, they really did a good job at that a couple of years ago. And they nailed it coming into the NFL draft. We're not trying to, you know, favor or be biased as any one school. We're trying to find, you know, we're rooting for ourselves more than we're rooting for any school. You know, Brandon, I'm really glad that you took the time to kind of outline that answer because I think – there's somewhat of a perception, and you kind of touched on it, that there's, you know, some nefarious or like almost a malicious intent in terms of, you know, they're out to get things wrong in terms of recruiting or they're overlooking and this, that, and the other. And like you said, you made a great point at the end where, you know, you guys obviously aren't out to get things wrong. And also it's an imperfect science. You know, I don't care whether it's a, it's high school recruiting or, you know, you take the next level and you go from college to the NFL. It's obviously an imperfect science. So, you know, I'm really glad you took the time to outline that. But I, I want to transition to a point you made, you know, one of Joe's questions. When you were talking about, you know, schools and states that don't have uh, a certain amount of power five teams to recruit against. And I, I want to transition this into Conference USA here for a second. If you look at the state of Texas, you know, the Rice, North Texas, UTEP, UTSA, uh, it's been a bit of a tough sledding for them. I mean, North Texas has had some success over the past few years. Obviously, a lot of that's relation to Mason Fine. But when you look at the state of Texas and Conference USA, overall, they've really kind of struggled to compete in terms of recruiting and uh, compete on the field. But then when you look at, you know, the state of Florida, my home state, you take FIU and FAU, which have been able to trade, you know, whether it's in Conference USA titles or bowl games. And even if you look at the other G5s in state, which is UCF and USF, they've obviously had levels of success. So I want to ask you, you know, can you kind of compare and contrast, you know, the um, 
maybe the ability for a group of five schools in those two states to recruit and, you know, kind of the second part of that question is, why has it been such a struggle for maybe, you know, the, uh, the UTSAs, the UTEPs to really kind of get it going? Because you would think in uh, states that have a, such rich with talent that there'd be enough talent um, across the board to where, you know, the trickle-down effect of that, those group of five schools would really be able to progress and have some success on the field. This is going to sound hot take-ish a bit, but I think because high school football in the state of Texas is so great, and it's, it's hard to argue. I mean, you've got high school stadiums that have 20,000, 25,000 seats, and they pack them out. They pack in the state championships in Jerry's world. And, you know, you, you look at the California state championship. They do it at a junior college. You go to Florida, they do it in a half-empty Citrus Bowl or whatever stadium sponsor it is now. But, you know, you look at the high school football in Texas, and it's beloved. But I also think – there's a tendency to overrate just how good the depth is. Now, there's going to be a large number of players that will sign in Texas because just demographically and population-wise, there's a ton of players that you can choose from. And then when you have the most – I think Texas has the most FBS playing programs in the country, the state of Texas does, uh, over Florida and California – you're going to have to fill a lot of recruiting classes. So naturally, you're going to see a lot of Texas schools feast on Texas players. But there's a reason that the University of Texas and Texas A&M have been recruiting outside their own state a lot more in the last decade. It's not to say that the state of Texas talent isn't great. It's just there's the obvious ones, but then there's a big drop-off between that first-tier and that second tier. And you're also seeing that, even though this isn't a Conference USA program, but it's the same way if you looked in the Mountain West with, with San Diego State and Fresno State and, and uh, San Jose State, there's a huge drop-off from the top talent to that second and third level. Whereas I think in Florida, there the drop-off is, is, it's like when you're, you know, descending in an airplane. You know, you're not going from 25,000 feet to 20,000 feet that quickly. You're gradually moving your way down. And, those 150th, 200th play, ranked players in the state of Florida are probably better than maybe the, the 100 player in Texas, the 100 player in California. There's just so much top-end talent in the state of Florida. But then you also look at the, the seriousness of the football. I mean, both are still relatively newer programs in FIU and FAU. And then they've had, even when they've had some head coaching hires that kind of let you scratching your head, those guys were power five coaches before. So you look at Elaine Kiffin, you look at, um, you know, Butch, you look at Willie Taggart. Those are guys that have been at power five programs that have been at the highest level. And they, they kind of want to get back to that level. So they have raised their game recruiting wise. They've raised their game staff wise. And they've got, you know, better budgets to work with. And they're in much nicer areas. They're, they're in more uh, – comfortable exotic locales then you go look in texas and with all due respect to you know el paso and san antonio i've spent you know just about 15 straight januarys for a week in san antonio and, and they love their football it was at the alamo Bowl this year when texas was playing utah and you know an eight and four texas that wasn't back team they still packed out the alamo dome so they love their football but utsa has been kind of up and down in the 10 years that they've had the program UTEP has, you know, consistently struggled. And, and I think part of it is because there's – and I don't, I don't know if even overrated is the right usage of the right word. I just think that the level that FAU and FIU get to recruit in the state of Florida, those kids in that tier that they're primarily recruiting 
are better than that same tier that the UTSAs, the UTEPs are recruiting. And, and I think that that's why you see them have much more success. I think North Texas is in a different role because they've, they've been up and down. They've had like a roller coaster effect too, but they're also in that Metro Dallas area rather than, you know, way in the Western part of the state or in San Antonio where, you know, you're an hour and 20 minutes from Austin, but you're still three and a half hours away from Houston and Dallas. I think North Texas' location makes it a little easier for them. And, and that's why I think they're kind of the outlier when it comes to state of Texas. They've had their own kind of roller coaster ebbing and flowing. So your answer really, you know, really transitions me into talking about the Panthers. And when I had a chance to sit down and talk with Coach Davis on signing day, really one of my biggest takeaways from FIU signing day as a whole, uh, and this just was kind of just, you know, the, the reporter in me kind of just it, it noticed this, is that the entire coaching staff was out for signing day. I mean, typically, you know, you may see, you know, the head coach and one of you, maybe the, the recruiting coordinator, but the fact that the entire coaching staff was out, you know, they obviously felt confident in the fact that they had all their guys locked up and signed. And you've kind of talked about their class as a whole. So I'm going to kind of just ask some guys in specificity, uh, two guys specifically. A.J. Mathis, who was a former University of Miami commit, and I believe he decommitted the day before the upset, uh, FIU's upset of Miami. And then another guy in Jose Mirabal, who's a guard who uh, had a lot of Power 5 interests, but, had been a, but has been a solid FIU commit all the way through the process. Just talk about those guys a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you look at a guy like Mirabal, and, you know, when you, you look at kind of how his process went down, he commits, and, you know, he had all those offers. It's a comfort level. It's a feeling that, you know, Butch and his staff are going to develop me. And, you know, I see that a lot out West with, with San Diego State and Boise State, two schools that recruit a little bit better than the majority of the schools in their conference because they've got a nice track record, whether it was Rocky Long at San Diego State or Rocky Long in New Mexico, whether it was Brian Hartford or Chris Peterson before, they've got a history and a track record of developing their players no matter where they're at. And, and that's where I think, you know, Butch is, is, is so unique in Conference USA is that he's got a track record. I mean, you, you could say he was the architect of, you know, easily the most talented team in the 21st century by far. And, you know, did the NFL work out for him? No. Did Carolina work out for him? Not, not particularly. But this is a guy who built an absolute juggernaut at Miami. And so I, I think being realistic, you're not going to get that level of caliber player at FIU but you're going to be able to still get the development, the coaching, the ability to evaluate and find the right fit. And so in the case of the Mirabelle, he sees that I can go there. I may have a better opportunity to play right away. You know, it's the, the chicken and the egg theory. It's, do I want to go to a power five school and maybe wait to my redshirt junior year to play? Or do I want to go maybe play at a G five school and play earlier? you know, and have more opportunity. And especially when you're an offensive lineman, you see some, I mean, Eric Fisher, he starts in the NFL, uh, he starts in the Super Bowl as a left tackle out of the Mac. You know, there, that's an exception rather than the rule. But the point being with the offensive lineman, you see a lot more guys that aren't in the Power 5 program. So you've got to go where you feel you connect best with the offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator, depending on your position. Also, with the head coach. And you, you look and say, you know, I'm content there. I, I committed there early and I think it's even more remarkable that he commits early and those schools didn't stop recruiting him and they were able to hold on to him. So I think that's obviously a significant one. And then you have, you know, the case of Adrian Mathis. I mean, again, it's a situation where he looks and he sees, you know, I can go to the SEC, I can go to the ACC, 
or I can go play for the guy who developed the the Sean Taylors, the Ray Lewis's, the you know the DJ Williams, the all well, it was before DJ, the Jonathan Vilmos. You go look and you see what this coach's track record has been, and you realize that might be a better fit for me. I can go star in a really good program, or I can go be at a program that right now could be somewhat of a dumpster fire. That and not to say that Miami is a dumpster fire, but there's a little bit more stability, I think, with Butch. And instead of you know the the coaching carousel that Miami has undergone the last couple of years with Mark Rick suddenly retiring, and Manny Diaz leaving and coming back, I think a lot of times these guys are just looking for some stability too. It's ironic you mentioned that point, Brandon, about you know Butch Davis being the architect of uh, arguably, or in some cases not arguably, depending on who you ask, you know one of the greatest college football teams of all time. Uh, if you ask guys on this coaching staff, you know, whether it was Ken Dorsey, who was on the coaching staff in 2018, um, was it Damian Lewis, who's a, a part of the program now, or Bryn Renner, who's a cornerbacks coach, former North Carolina quarterback, they are not shy about saying that, you know, one of our selling points of recruits is that Bush Davis is the architect of said team. So it's a, ironic you mentioned that. But going ahead and, and, and transition to uh, kind of a program on the rise here in Conference USA, you know, a young, energetic coach in an area um, that I, from, you know, just, gauging it and seeing that the football is level of high school football talent is, is kind of improving there. And that's Charlotte. Um, so just want to give you, a, you know, your overall thoughts on Will Healy and Charlotte in that class. And then second part of that question, just your thought about your thoughts about high school football in the Carolinas as a whole. Well, I mean, you can look back at, at the, the state of North Carolina and you could find a lot of really good players that have come from there. And, you know, it's kind of fascinating that, you know, North Carolina, North Carolina state and Duke, have never really capitalized on it, but other schools in their respective conferences have prioritized North Carolina. I mean, Georgia, even though they're not in the same conference as those schools, they've always hit North Carolina hard. Um, so I think you look at the state, and there's a lot of good talent in those states. It just tends to get overlooked. I mean, when you, see, when you say the words Duke and North Carolina, what's the first sport that comes to mind? It's basketball. We always immediately think it's basketball. So those are basketball states, but there's some pretty dang good football in those states. You know, Todd Gurley uh, is a player from, you know, recently that came from there. If you look at this last recruiting class in the state of North Carolina, you know, you had three guys uh, that were elite players that came from the state of North Carolina. Trenton Simpson, who, you know, Clemson was able to kind of uh, slow play right up until three days before signing day, and then they offered him. You have Desmond Evans, who's a big-time pass rusher uh, out of North Carolina. You got Jacorius Conley, who, you know, and now that Matt Brown's back in the state, they're going to recruit North Carolina. So you've got that good talent, but it's another one of those states where Duke, Wake Forest have a little bit of a different recruiting philosophy because of the academics. You know, UNC and North Carolina State should be able to kind of pick and choose who they want, but they both have had kind of a tendency to recruit nationally. And obviously with Mac Brown there, there's a couple guys that he's recruited from the state of Texas. So that allows for a school like Charlotte to then come in and say, okay, these next year guys, they may not get those, you know, ACC offers. They may not get some of those ACC schools to come out on, but they may not have the academics for a Duke or a Wake Forest and Carolina and, and the you know, Duke or, or Carolina, Carolina State are looking elsewhere. But then that allows Charlotte to come in and say, okay, you know, we're building a nice little program here in our backyard. We, we've got a program that's, you know, on the rise. You've got a, a young, energetic head coach who, you know, is full of energy, who's just, you know, full of 
uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that kind of compare him to a young Davos Sweeney just because of the energy that, that he shows and, you know, how, how much he just loves, you know, being in coaching and to understand that. And you saw it when, I think it was when they were announcing their bowl, like how excited he was to, to be able to tell those guys. So kids feed on that. They, they see that this is a young coach who they can relate to, who they can, you know, feel comfortable with, who that they can see as a guy that they want to spend the next few years with. And they're a part of a program that's building. And so you look at, you know, when we, we think of UCF in the current model, we think now of the uh, McKenzie Milton UCF and what Scott Frost was there, but it was Dante Culpepper 20 years ago who then turned into the George O'Leary, Blake Bortles uh, UCF. But 20 years ago, there was, I remember when UCLA was losing a game to Miami that cost them a spot in the national championship, which cost Arizona a spot in the Rose Bowl, which cost UCF a chance in a bowl. And now we have a UCF scenario in the last six years. They've been the three either BCS bowls or New Year's Day bowls. So these programs, when you're getting in them at the, at the beginning stages and you're in a talent-rich area like Charlotte is, where there still is a lot of in-state talent, guys want to be a part of something new and help establish that program and, and be kind of the, the guys that really went through the lumps to get the program to, it wouldn't be a surprise if in 20 years, you know, Charlotte is a team that they look back on their early years, like UCF looks back at the late nineties program, you know, so you, you just see that there's that buying and, you know, the biggest thing Charlotte's going to have to, to deal with is if they continue to have success in the world, it's keeping him there because that is the one thing when you're a group of five school, it is difficult every year you get negatively recruited against because if you have any success, every other school is saying, ah, oh, he's going to be gone anyway. He's not even going to be there when, by the time you're ready to play. And that's just kind of one of the realities that comes with it. But that's why I think it's remarkable what they've done in that they don't have the depth and they still don't even have really the national history. I mean, I bet there's a ton of people that still consider it UNC Charlotte. Maybe we see the basketball UNC Charlotte from several years ago that would make little runs in the tournament. And, you know, it doesn't have the name recognition yet. Here they are in a bowl game and here they are with the top half class in the conference. And now they get that momentum because of the bowl game and that everything that Will Healy was selling the program, selling the boosters and the fans, and more importantly, the recruits on, it's starting to come to fruition. So here's the last question I'm going to kind of end with before I toss it back to Joe. We'll close this thing up is, you know, just conference USA as, as a whole, you know, the league's kind of been up and down and, and it's always a, a league that you never know who's going to come out and when it seems like, each year there's a team who's projected to, you know, win nine or 10 games and they fall short. There's a team that's projected to win four or five and they rise up. Uh, just if you're a fan of Conference USA, is there a specific area of recruiting? You know, you talk about Texas and, you know, maybe the lack of depth, but you talk about Florida and maybe having, you know, a, a dearth of talent, uh, you know, a wealth of talent. Is there a certain area, you know, uh, for example, Marshall, they tend to recruit Florida really well in addition to the Florida schools. You always you can look at um, even the Southern Misses and Louisiana Techs. Is there a certain area that's within the Conference USA kind of landscape that you can say, you know, just from your expertise in high school recruiting that says that's the next area that's on the rise? Uh, if you're an Old Dominion fan or if you're just a fan of college football, I would buy stock in what Old Dominion's doing. And that was even before Ricky Ron got there. This is a region that continues to flourish. And in the Virginia area, there's a lot of great football being played in that state. There, there's a reason why the ACC wanted Virginia Tech in that conference so many years ago. They wanted access to it. It's the same reason that, 
you know, just kind of that whole metropolitan Virginia, Maryland, the DMV, whatever that, that kind of that region uh, back East, you, you saw the big 10 want Maryland in the big 10 because they want access to the recruits there. And so if you're an old dominion fan, you're sitting in a, in a region where the football is going to continue to get better. There's going to be more talent to choose from. And that kind of that Atlantic mid Atlantic area is really starting to see a rise and a renaissance, if you will, of talented football players coming out of there. And I think that that's kind of the, the next plateau, the next frontier, uh, if you will, of recruiting in that part of the country and really in the country in general. And it's why there's so many schools that have tried to hire high school coaches from out around that area onto their collegiate staff. So that gives them some kind of inroad into that region. And I think that that's going to be kind of the next frontier in terms of where you're going to see a real rise in, in talent coming from. Awesome. Brandon, thanks so much for your insight, man. I know we appreciated having you on and uh, it's always nice to get uh, somebody besides the two of us on the show to kind of offer their, their take on COSA and the college football space. Glad to help. <laughs> thanks so much, man. I know we'll, uh, we'll start wrapping the show up then. Uh, if you want to follow Brandon on Twitter, he's at Brandon Huffman and uh, be sure to go check out uh, his recruiting coverage with 247 Sports uh, on obviously 247sports.com and all his social media and all their social media. So uh, enjoy that content. If you want to follow Eric and myself on social media, we are at Eric C. Henry underscore and J-O-E-H-I-O underscore respectively. And of course, check out uh, our coverage of college football on uh, underdogdynasty.com every day for more G5 football stuff. And you can follow at underdogdynasty.com on Twitter as well. Uh, keep coming back over the course of the off season. We're going to have some, uh, some former players, some current players, hopefully a few coaches on and uh, looking forward to talking college football, you know, year round as we do. So uh, happy football watching everybody. We'll talk to you real soon.